Good morning, and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. The Jewish community recently finished celebrating and observing the biblical holiday of Passover. In the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy, the holiday is identified as a seven-day holiday, and in the land of Israel today, it is celebrated as a a seven-day holiday. But in many uh, parts of the Jewish world, uh, primarily in the Orthodox communities of uh, Western Europe and those that are descended from Eastern Europe, it is celebrated as an eight-day holiday, reflecting the ancient notion that an extra day was necessary to assure proper uh, usage of the calendar, which had not yet been fixed, and then after the fixing of the calendar, to indicate that those living outside the land of Israel um, were in exile and that their observance should take on extra meaning. Much of the Haggadah, which is the book used at the Passover meal known as the Seder, can be read as an extended midrash, an extended commentary on the biblical exodus. But the Haggadah's rendering curiously differs from that of the Torah and the midrash in its virtual omission of women. In fact, the Haggadah mentions only one woman by name in a song toward the end of the Seder, the ritual meal on the first night of Passover. This becomes all the more striking in light of the teaching by Rabbi Akiva, one of the great second century rabbis from the Talmud. He teaches, the Israelites were delivered from Egypt as a reward for the righteous women who lived in that generation. The Haggadah alludes to Pharaoh's plan to destroy the Israelites by preventing them from procreating It says, and I quote, the enforced separation of husband and wife. Akiva credits women with thwarting Pharaoh's scheme by defiantly meeting their weary husbands, weary from building the pyramids in the fields under the apple trees, feeding them with warm food, anointing them with oil and seducing them, and later stealing off to deliver their children. Akiva's allusion to the apple tree finds its way onto the Seder plate. The Talmud explains that the haroset, and in many traditions, this is made with apples and nuts and wine, must be thick as a reminder of the clay from which the Israelites made bricks. But it also must be tart to commemorate the apple trees and the events that transpired beneath them. For Akiva, the women's unwillingness to forsake love and sensuality in the midst of degradation was a critical ingredient that human beings uh, contributed to their redemption from Egypt. According to Akiva and translations and interpretations, women brought life into a world where Pharaoh had decreed death. So, 
this morning, I want to speak with you about the women who are missing in action from the story of Passover as it's told uh, on the first night of Passover. And to help me with my conversation is Rabbi Elizabeth Bolton, a Montreal-born rabbi, teacher, singer, cantor. Prior to graduating from rabbinical school, Rabbi Bolton studied music and women's studies and, in fact, sang on opera and concert stages in Canada, including performing at the opening Royal Gala of Expo 86 for the Prince and Princess of Wales. Rabbi Bolton continues her musical career while she serves as the rabbi of the Reconstructionist Congregation in Ottawa, Canada, or Hanishama. Rabbi Bolton was named one of the forward's most inspiring rabbis of 2016. Rabbi Bolton, welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. It's a pleasure to have you with us this morning. Thank you so much, Rabbi Garten. I'm really grateful for the opportunity. Well, as you know, um, you and I are going to have a conversation about the um, place of women in the Exodus story and in the Haggadah, the book which is used as the central focus on the first night of Seder. So let's begin at the beginning. And why don't you share with us your understanding um, of the role of women as it's expressed in the Torah uh, uh, concerning the Exodus? Well, it's pretty straightforward as far as I'm concerned, although we know very much uh, about the Pharaoh and Moses and Aaron, his brother, the story really is driven by women, and it's right there uh, at the beginning of the book of Exodus when the Pharaoh um, puts forth his edict that all of the firstborn uh, males of the Israelites uh, should be killed, the women instantly initiate a resistance. So I would say the first, uh, you know, an antagonist to Pharaoh uh, in the book of Exodus, in the first chapter, all the women, all the Israelite women, they then are assisted in their resistance. And, and how do you um, make the determination from your reading of the text that the women uh, led the resistance? Well, uh, so Pharaoh uh, has an audience, or two, two, two um, Hebrew midwives named Shifra and Pua uh, are, are brought before the Pharaoh because uh, apparently, well, they are assisting the uh, Israelite women in not um, killing the firstborn males, and their phrase, as recorded in the Torah, uh, is that the women are too vigorous in their childbirth, and they give birth before before we even get there. So we can easily imagine that there is a kind of a great uh, uh, women's conspiracy to keep these young lads alive. And um, the Hebrew is a bit ambiguous about whether Shifra and Pua are Hebrews who are also midwives or midwives to the Hebrews. How do you read the text? 
Indeed, I love that ambiguity because as with so many things that are both written and not written, we can and in fact are um, obligated to read between the lines to try to determine uh, you know, what, how, how we would film the scene if we were the filmmaker of this particular passage um, so that the ambiguity doesn't trouble me. And I prefer to sort of live with it. Maybe one year I'm going to read it as they were also Israelites. And other years I can read it as they were women from another tribe in solidarity with other women. And uh, particularly then uh, following that story, we see uh, two Israelite women who really take matters into their own hands. And that those women are the unnamed mother of baby Moses and uh, the baby's sister, um, whom we very soon find out will be, is Miriam. And so if, as you suggest, and the text is pretty straightforward, as you suggest, women play a central role um, in the beginning of the story, when we get to the Haggadah, um, how is it that they seem to have disappeared? So this is really interesting. And now, I don't know if you'll, uh, you and your listeners will be surprised by this, but I would say this isn't particularly about the women. It's actually about the biblical story itself. Uh-huh. Moses is just as, um, if you will, um, invisible in the Haggadah, uh, as Miriam is, and, and some might find that very surprising, because the text in the Haggadah is primarily a conversation uh, amongst and about um, the rabbis, the rabbis of the, the Mishnah, and uh, with the texts that we call Midrash, sort of interpretive texts about the Exodus story. So baby Moses, his sister Miriam, um, and, and, and all the other women aren't in the text at all. The main character is not even Pharaoh, it is God. Isn't that interesting that, um, and this year in particular, when Passover and Easter uh, had a confluence of dates on the same weekend in 2019, that Easter, of course, um, the central actor in the drama is uh, Jesus of Nazareth, um, and the readings in churches and from the Gospels will certainly focus on Jesus by name, but in the Haggadah you're suggesting that Moses, who's the central actor in all the movies, is really uh, absent from uh, the story in a leading role. There's no, right. there's no uh, Charlton Heston in the Haggadah, is what you're suggesting. You know what? The, the, the Char- Moses, uh, as represented by Charlton Heston, you know, does play a, uh, a small role. I think, for example, of the, of the a very uh, much-loved song uh, that is sung in the Passover Seder uh, that we call Dayenu. Right. based on the repeated word. And and yes, you know, Dayenu meaning it would have been enough if we had just been brought to Mount Sinai, but not given Torah, it w- would have been enough. I mean, all of this. So we know that receiving the Torah, 
at Mount Sinai, through the hands of Moses, is a factor in our story, and clearly a big one in the story of the Jewish people. But you're right, not in the retelling on, on Passover night according to the traditional text. Right. So it doesn't bother you, if I hear you correctly, that women are not singled out in the Haggadah for their uh, laudatory role in uh, preparing the Israelites for the Exodus because you see and want our listeners to understand that um, human beings are not singled out as the central actors in this drama. But it's really a conflict between God and Pharaoh. Yeah, not so fast there about not bothered. Okay, okay, good. (laughs) I would say that because because women's experiences tend not to be um, held up in the rabbinic uh, tradition in the way that the texts are recorded, um, it's, yes, I, uh, you know, I have to be, be honest and say, you know, Moses does get this treatment as well. At the same time, it uh, has to be put in the context of the larger body of the texts and the larger experience of women's representation or lack of women's representation uh, in our traditional texts and in our rituals. So as I was saying earlier about, um, you know, the, the obligation we have and the opportunity we have to read between the lines, to interpret, and to continue the practice of imagining rituals that aid in our retelling of the story. Um, new rituals have um, emerged that assist us in holding up the experiences of women in our tradition, and particularly the women of the Passover story. So before you go into the modern expression, I want to share with you this midrash, which I was unaware of before I uh, prepared for our conversation this morning, um, and ask you what your response to it was. Right? Sure. So you told us about the story in Exodus 2, which I'll just um, read for our listeners. This is Exodus 2, verses 5. Um, the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe in the Nile while her maidens walked along the Nile. She spied the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to fetch it. When she opened it, she saw that it was a child, a boy, crying. She took pity on him and said, this must be a Hebrew child. She named him Moses, explaining, I drew him out of the water. Uh, So that's your, um, you reminded us of that retelling and identified that here too, um, a woman, in this case, a uh, Egyptian woman, plays a central role in the narrative. But then this Midrash um, I discovered. So I wanted to share it with you and see what your uh, response to it was. So the the Midrash asked the question, why did Pharaoh's daughter, who the Midrash calls Bitya, go down to the Nile? And the Midrash says it was to cleanse herself of her father's idol. When the maiden saw that she wished to rescue Moses, they said to her, Mistress, it is the custom of the world that when a human king makes a decree, though everybody else does not obey it, at least his children and the members of the household obey it. But you transgress your father's decree. 
the angel Gabriel came and beat them to the ground. So that's the first part of the Midrash. Then it goes on and says, um, God said to Bitya, the daughter of Pharaoh, Moses was not your son, yet you called him your son. You two are not my daughter, yet I will call you my daughter, Batya, <laughs> the daughter of God. And then history seems to extrapolate from this. Um, Bitya, or Batya, enjoyed an unusual life because of her special relationship with Moses. She was the only firstborn Egyptian that God spared during the last terrible plague, and that she left Egypt with the Israelites and later married uh, Caleb, who takes on a significant role later in the Book of Numbers. So I'm wondering, um, since we've been talking about the role of women, both in the Exodus story and in the Seder, what do you make of this um, story written by the rabbis? And I don't even I, know if you knew of it beforehand. I, I certainly knew of the, uh, the Midrash that uh, gives her this special name. Okay. Uh, I missed the part about her marrying Caleb, so thank <laughs> you for that. That's fascinating. Um, you know, it, along the lines of that question you posed earlier uh, about how to read the texts about Shifra and Pua, you know, right. who were they? Which tribe did they belong to? We have a similar situation here, although, of course, it is slightly different since in the text, uh, this figure is clearly identified as the daughter of Pharaoh. Right. But what I see the rabbis in the Midrash doing is drawing on that uh, similar kind of opportunity to look at, you know, what is it to be in what particular tribe when what you do helps in a way further um, this narrative of our people this narrative of our people that finds this um, uh, a liberator um, being assisted by folks from, uh, you know, uh, the even not just another tribe, but the, the community that is oppressing us. I mean, it's uh, fascinating that um, the rabbis who, in, as you suggested, in crafting the Haggadah, put themselves in the central role of the Haggadah, what do the rabbis say, what do the rabbis command, uh, stories about the rabbis, um, seem to have an off-screen um, narrative, an off-screen um, experience that they want to convey to everybody, um, or maybe only convey to those who are knowledgeable of it or learned um, you know, I, I'm struck, um, and I'm interested in your comment. Um, so Bitya marries Caleb, and Caleb is known um, for being a bit of a rebel um, in the story along, of Numbers. Right. Along with Joshua. Along with Joshua. So both of them in the story of the spies in Israel, the 12 spies in the book of Numbers who go to scout out the land, 10 mm -hmm. come back and say the land is unfit and we're scared. And Caleb and uh, Joshua say, no, 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 we can do this. Um, and so he's associated with this um, Egyptian woman who's a bit of a rebel, as the Midrash says, right? Because everybody else can disagree with the secular king's rules, but his children must not. 
Yeah, uh, yeah. I love that connection. That is a great one. Um, the two rebels finding each other. <laughs> right. It would be- make for a great wedding sermon. There you go. Um, so in your thinking about the Haggadah and Passover, how do you teach um, about the missing, um, the 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 fact that the women seem to be missing at the Seder table, and share with us about the new uh, traditions that seem to rightfully place them there. Well, one of the other biblical characters uh, who is featured in the Haggadah, but actually not directly a part of the Passover story, is the prophet Elijah. So there is a custom of having a cup filled Uh, with wine or grape juice on the table, and then uh, after the meal, the the door is open and we welcome the prophet Elijah. So this notion of a prophet who somehow um, offers uh, redemption to our people has been linked by contemporary Jewish feminists, not directly in terms of the story, but in terms of the ritual opportunity to Miriam and a Miriam's cup a Miriam's cup filled not with wine or grape juice, but with water, is now uh, a regular ritual item on many Passover Seder tables. And why water? Because I'm sure it relates to this legend of Miriam's well, but perhaps you can expand on that. Oh, absolutely. You're, 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 of course, right. Miriam and water, starting, of course, with, you know, drawing the, you know, putting the baby in the river. And then uh, back again to the book of Numbers, uh, when the Israelites are traveling to the desert and in need of water, the rabbis extrapolate, if you will, um, from the moment of Miriam's death, when then, um, you know, the people at that point are complaining that there is no water um, to uh, craft a, a, a midrash, a legend, if you will, that it was because of Miriam's merit. Right. Be- so, that, so I'll just read that little ah, section in numbers. Beautiful. Um, that you're referring to and um, give our listeners um, an insight out as to how these customs evolve in Jewish tradition. This is from Numbers 20, uh, verses 1 and 2. The Israelites arrived in a body at the wilderness of Zin on the first new moon of the 40th year, and the people stayed at Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there, and the community was without water. Indeed. And it goes, it, it goes on to say, and then they start their complaining again. Right. Complaining. That's right. Uh, <laughs> and, and this is the place where um, they complain about uh, no water and uh, Moses has to decide what to do mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. about water. Um, and, you know, throughout um, the entirety of the story, uh, Miriam's name is associated with water, um, as you said, from the taking of uh, Moses out of the, uh, putting him into the water, so that yeah. Pharaoh's daughter, and then at the splitting of the Red Sea. Um, Absolutely. You know, I have, not only do I have now in my uh, Passover collection of artifacts uh, a Miriam's cup that I painted with my daughter when she was young, but we also have Miriam's 
tambourines. Ah, uh, so, so share course. with us how that becomes a symbol of Exodus. And you put that on the Seder table, yes? Well, maybe not right on the table, but we have it, you know, in the Close vicinity. By. On the sideboard, nicely right. displayed, shall we when say. When you sing, uh, it's there and accessible. Exactly. So uh, in, uh, of course, Exodus uh, 15, when uh, the children of Israel cross the Red Sea, first Moses sings a very long poem, and then at the, the end of the Song of the Sea, uh, uh, there are a few verses that say, Miriam took her timbrel in her hand, and all the women followed her, and they danced and they sang, and then she also chants and sings one of the lines of victory uh, about the crossing of the sea. It's a rich, brief, but incredibly tantalizing image. Um, you know, there's a, a modern midrash, if you will, but, you know, sort of a, a modern um, questioning and reinterpretation saying, wow, they didn't even have time, you know, to bake the bread fully when they were departing, but they had time to grab their drums and timbrels because it was so important to make music. At that moment. Exactly. Right. Well, you know, they uh, were they were either doomed or they were going to make it, and if they were going to make it, they were going to sing and dance. And the, the biblical text seems to say that the burden of dancing and making music um, was the responsibility of the women. I mean, it's very clear in the text, right? Moses holds up his hand with a staff, um, and then at the end of that, as um, the waters uh, come back together in the text, Miriam is leading the uh, charge of uh, celebration. So Look, you talked I, about Miriam. I'll just Mir- have to insert yeah. one more concept. I'll, I'll try to be uh, delicate about it. But women and water and liberation and passing through water and, you know, being born, if you will, as a people, because this then sets the people on the road to Sinai, is a rather strong allusion to the waters of birth. Wow, wonderful. That is so powerful that one has all of these images that don't require for the perspective, insightful reader to be hit over the head about the role of women. Um, I'm told that our time is coming to a close, and so I want to uh, thank you for uh, participating and sharing in this conversation. I know there must be many uh, other uh, traditions that have evolved to um, highlight the role of women in the Exodus experience, but it doesn't appear that we're going to have time. So I want to thank Rabbi Liz Bolton, uh, Rabbi of Or Hanishama, Ottawa's Reconstructionist community, for joining us this morning. Um, and I hope that you have had a good Passover. Um, our broadcast can be heard as a podcast on iTunes under the name Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, and it can be um, heard, replayed on the CHRI website as a podcast for Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. This is Rabbi Stephen Garten wishing you shalom and have a good day. Shalom.